0: Welcome to The Surge, a podcast about all things AM surge and the ambulatory surgery center industry, where we share insight, news, and conversations relevant to our nationwide network of centers. Join us as we hear from AM surge leadership, partners, and healthcare experts about the best practices, trends, and strategies that help your business thrive. Now, here's today's host AM medical staff lead, Dr. Jay
1: Popp. Hi, and welcome to The Surge. I'm Dr. Jay Popp, AmSurge's Medical Staff Development Lead, and I'm going to be your host today. I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Steven Iskowitz, Professor of Medicine, Oncological Sciences, and Medical Education, and Director of the GI Fellowship Program at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. Dr. Itzkowitz has held several prestigious positions in his field, including serving as past Chair of the Gastrointestinal Oncology Section of the AGA, past president of the New York Gastroenterological Association, past co-chair of the New York Citywide Colon Cancer Control Coalition, and he's the incoming chair of the National Colorectal Cancer Roundtable. In addition to his teaching duties, Steve is also the director of the Gastrointestinal Cancer Research Program at Mount Sinai, which focuses on detecting and preventing colon cancer and inflammatory bowel disease reducing disparities in colon cancer screening and developing new non-invasive stool DNA tests for colon cancer. In late May, Mount Sinai and AmSurge released the results of a collaborative effort aimed at informing additional research on colon cancer screenings in younger populations. The first of an ongoing collaboration between AmSurge and Mount Sinai These findings come after recent recommendations to lower the screening age from 50 to 45 for people at average risk of colon cancer as released by the USPSTF. We're very lucky to have Dr. Itzkowitz today to discuss the work Amsurge and his team at Mount Sinai have been doing to support efforts to encourage early and routine colon cancer screenings. Hi Steve, and first of all, can you tell us a little bit about your practice? You're, You're clearly a triple threat clinician, teacher, researcher, and I think our audience would really like to know how you spend your typical day.
0: Thanks so much, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here, and I've absolutely enjoyed and delighted in the collaboration that I've had with the AMSURG team over the last year or so. So thanks for this opportunity, and thanks for asking about my career. Uh, you get to a certain age where people just assume that you've got a career that's on autopilot. Uh I divide my time equally between clinical care, research, teaching, and also administration. And I spent about 100% of my time with each one of those.
1: That's what I thought.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, probably about 30% time clinically, 30% research, 20% teaching, and 20% administration. Uh, I love each one of those components, and I have a hard time letting go of any one of them. But that's the nature of academic medicine.
1: Well, it's, it's clear in our time together, and uh, I've, I've really enjoyed getting to know you and your team and just watching the way you interact with uh, and the way you brought in uh, residents, students, and so forth to help with this project. It was really inspiring, and uh, I congratulate you, and you're, you're clearly a teacher extraordinaire and uh, a clinician as well, and uh, your, your efforts as a researcher are unparalleled. So I'm, I'm really curious, Steve. how did you decide to focus on GI cancer in general and colorectal cancer in particular? How, how did you get there?
0: It all started when I was applying for fellowship. Uh, I did my fellowship in GI at UCSF, and my mentor was Dr. Young Kim, who was a protege of Dr. Marv Schlesinger, who many of us know. Uh, the late Mars Schlesinger. And Young Kim's lab was devoted to understanding colorectal cancer at the bench. And for the first 15 years of my life, of my academic career, I focused on uh, basic mechanisms of colon cancer uh, in general and colon cancer in IBD. Um, But over time, I became more and more interested in The clinical manifestations uh, of colorectal cancer, particularly screening, and what we could do as a public health measure. So for the last 20 years, I've really focused my efforts on clinical research, trying to identify risk factors for colorectal cancer in patients with IBD, but also really trying to make screening colonoscopy accessible to everyone Who's eligible for screening? And we were among the first to show that patient navigation really promotes colonoscopy rates. And we did that in East Harlem with a predominantly African American and Latino community, but also across New York City. And we're very proud of that work. And it basically shows that if you provide access to people, it doesn't matter what their race or ethnicity is they'll come in for screening colonoscopy. Um, and that's pretty much uh, what I've been focusing on for the last 20 years, and I hope to continue to focus on in uh, in the next five or 10 years as well.
1: So Steve, with that navigation project, uh, tell us a little bit more about that. So obviously you identified patients who needed screening uh, you you got them the appropriate uh, appointments made and so forth. But then did you have a navigation process where you would uh, call and check on their prep and make sure you were able to get them to the appointment? You know, some of those kind of nuts and bolts and logistics.
0: Yes. In fact, that's at the heart of navigation. So what we did in our research, and also this is being done across New York City, is uh, once a patient is referred for a colonoscopy, the patient navigator would pick up the appointment and contact the patient, usually that was about two weeks ahead of the appointment, maybe three weeks, uh, just make contact, say, I'm going to be your navigator, I'm going to help you through the process. And then they would call the patient back several days before the colonoscopy, make sure that they understood and remembered the procedure time, they understood the prep. Uh, many times this was done in Spanish, if they were not English speakers, etc and then two days before the procedure again they would remind the patient do you have an escort you know, the diet that they needed to follow etc so it was really hand-holding along the way and that's probably the most effective way by which patient navigation is performed there are now digital navigation tools that have been also very effective and that allows for scaling up of navigation efforts that's a whole nother topic but uh, there's no doubt that colonoscopy is a complicated test. It's a complicated procedure. Uh, and you really need some sort of navigation along the way to really make sure that the preps are good uh, and that the no-show rates uh, are as low as can be.
1: Well, that's that's really so important, Steve. And, you know, when you think about uh, all the calls that you and I have gotten over our careers about patients trying to prep, having troubles in the middle of the night, so having somebody to help intervene there and answer those questions and talk them through it uh, really gets them to the finish line that's that's great information so let's talk a little bit about the background of the sinai am Surge partnership. How did this all come about?
0: It all came about when a guy named John W. Pop jr. contacted me and said uh, Steve, would you be interested in a in?" A a database that we have in AmSurg, uh, and he was calling me because uh, of my role as the co-chair of the Family History and Early Age Onset Colon Cancer Task Group for the National Colorectal Cancer Roundtable. And Jay, of course, has been a leader in the field of screening colonoscopy for many years. And in his role with AmSurg, uh, he realized that he was sitting on a really important database that could be used. To understand more about prevalence of pathology in the US screening population. So he approached me and my co-chair was Heather Hampel, and the previous co-chair, Paul Schroy, who still has remained very active in the early onset task group. And so we met with Jay and we learned how rich and robust the AMSurge database was. And we were salivating. We said, this is incredible. Uh, we had access to close to 3 million colonoscopies. There aren't that many databases in the country that have that kind of richness. And that's how it all started. It was because Jay called me.
1: <laughs> and, and more importantly, you returned my call, Steve, and I'm <laughs> forever grateful. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about the the major findings?
0: Yeah. Uh, actually, the findings are really uh, timely because we started this collaboration uh, in late 2020, uh, and as we were going about our research and our business, uh, it was becoming clear that the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force was going to be coming out with a revised guidelines for screening uh, somewhere in the spring of 2021. And as we all know, uh, that happened about a month ago, where the USPSTF came out and said that the age for screening should be lower to 45. So, over the last year, as we were analyzing the data we started to try to look at what is the prevalence of all pathology, uh, adenomatous polyps, serrated polyps, cancers, uh, in the AmSurge database. Uh, and we could specifically look at people who were having colonoscopies younger than age 50. And this was very important because, as I'm sure the audience is aware, Uh, people under 50 were not really supposed to be getting colonoscopies unless they had symptoms or a positive family history of colorectal cancer. So even to this day, we don't really have a good sense of the background prevalence of pathology in people under 50 because they're not routinely coming in for screening like people over 50 are. So we limited our Analysis to people younger than 50, and we specifically only looked at colonoscopies that were high quality, Secal intubation documented by uh, photo images, withdrawal times greater than six minutes, and adequate bowel preparations. Uh, so we know that the data are essentially as good as one can get in terms of top quality. We also decided to limit our analysis to colonoscopies that were either considered for screening or diagnostic purposes, not surveillance. We didn't want uh, to look at colonoscopies more than one colonoscopy on the same individual. We wanted it to try to be, if we could, the first colonoscopy that the person had so we could get a real sense of the uh, natural background of pathology. And what wound up happening is we looked at, as I said, we started out with close to 3 million colonoscopies and we narrowed that down because of those various criteria to about a half a million high-quality screening or diagnostic colonoscopies. And of that half a million or so colonoscopies, about 330,000 were people over age 50, 50 to 54. We kind of used them as a control group, if you will. And the, the other 280,000 or so were individuals Who were younger than age 50 and the findings of our study were the following if you just look at the rates of any neoplasia meaning adenomatous polyps serrated polyps cancers if you look at people 45 to 49 32 percent a third of them had some neoplastic pathology so a third had that and seven and a half percent had what we call advanced precancerous lesions, meaning an advanced adenoma, defined as adenoma greater than a centimeter, those with tubular villus histology or high-grade dysplasia, and also sessile serrated polyps that had dysplasia or that were larger than a centimeter. So these so-called important precancerous lesions were found in 7.5% of people 45 to 49. These data are important because, again, we don't have a lot of data on 45 to 49 or even younger age groups. And now we can say that in a cross-section of the country, because AMSurge really has a wide geographic catchment uh, in, I believe it's over 28 states. Uh, so it's quite indicative of what I would argue is representative of the US population. So a third of people, 45 to 49, will have a pathological finding, and 7.5% will have an advanced precancerous lesion. We also found that 0.6%, 0.58% had cancer. Uh, and that's a very important statistic. Hmm.
1: Steve, were there any, uh, were there any surprises? Or maybe can you tell us a little bit about The under 45, you know, should we be starting screening even earlier than 45? Did we get any insight from this study?
0: Yes, uh, thanks for asking, Jay. In fact, there's a gradual step up. If you, we started at age 18, looked at data from 18 year olds uh, up to 50, 54. And there's a gradual step up for every five year age group. So if you look at the 40 to 44 group, instead of it being 32% in the 45 to 49, it's at 27% in 40 to 44. So about a quarter of individuals ages 40 to 44 will be found to have any neoplasia. About 5.8% will be found to have an advanced precancerous lesion. And we found that 0.53% had cancer, which is almost as high as the 0.58% of people 45 to 49. So that data also tells us that it's not as if pathologies just suddenly shows up at age 45. There's a lot of people walking around from 40 to 44 who already have important pathology. Now, we have to be careful. We're not going to necessarily lower the screening age now to 40. uh, But We do have to be aware that this data suggests that we have to be messaging patients earlier. We shouldn't wait until they're 45 and say, oh, you turned 45, now it's time for your colonoscopy. We really should be talking to them younger than that. And this data suggests that, you know, even in the five years before age 45, there's important pathology. And many studies have shown that there's a procrastination effect, whereby Lots of data shows that even now, before the screening age was lowered to 45, if you look at the 50 to 54 year group, their rates of colon cancer have not been going down the way rates 55 and older have been. And that's because people wait, they procrastinate, they don't come in on their 50th birthday. They may not even come in on their 53rd or 54th birthday. And now that the age is going to be lowered to 45, There's still going to be a procrastination effect, we believe. Uh, We don't know that yet, but human nature being the way it is, it probably will run that way. So our 40 to 44 data, and I would again emphasize that without a robust data set like the AMSURG data set, we wouldn't have these kinds of numbers. 40 to 44 is still showing pathology enough so that we really have to early message patients and say, listen, by the time you're 45, you better be in and getting screening.
1: Well, that's a great point, Steve. And, you know, it's so easy to put off a test that many perceive as being uncomfortable. It's a day off of work. They hear about the prep. Uh, They're feeling well anyway. They have no symptoms. And actually, when we look at our database, we have found that for the last five or six years since we've been tracking this and look at the first screening colonoscopy that's done. Uh, the average age is fifty eight and and it's stayed there for the last several years. So you know you, to your point, which you've made so so effectively is that people say, well, maybe when I'm fifty one, maybe fifty two So what we're thinking is now that they've lowered the age to forty five uh, our cohort of patients is not eight years late they're th- they're thirteen years late. so we we've got to do better um, you know, and the messaging is so important so. You know this partnership has been such a joy for us to to work on, I, and I can tell you the AmSurge team—that um, was the highlight of their of their week when we had calls with uh, with your team, and it was it was so much fun and so invigorating and so much different than what we do day to day. But you know this partnership we like to think of as being in its early stages. Um, what else do you What else do we have planned, Steve? Let's give our audience a little tip. Well,
0: one of the things we're really excited about trying to investigate is now that we know the prevalence of pathology in the patients that Amsurge uh providers have have been treating, it would really be fascinating to see if we could understand a little bit more on the provider side, on the physician side, are there any characteristics of the providers that might play into their adenoma detection rates? We all know that ADR is one of the most important quality metrics that we have in Uh, screening for colorectal cancer and screening colonoscopies. And there's some literature as to the uh, provider characteristics, the gender of the provider, the years out of practice, um, whether they're a gastroenterologist versus a surgeon or or a non-gastroenterologist. There are certainly some data that are out there. But one of the unique aspects of the AMSurge database is that you have so many providers that span so many geographic areas. Uh, it would really be fascinating, we think, and I say we, meaning the AMSurge team and the Mount Sinai team, it would really be fascinating to see if we could understand a little bit more, are there any uh, features of the providers that might influence or uh, or bear upon their ADR rates? Uh so we've reached out to the am surge practices uh, with an anonymous survey asking providers if they would be willing to just offer what is their uh, sex, what is their race, their ethnicity, the years in practice, whether they are a gastroenterologist or, or not um and completely anonymously and what we would like to do is see if we can look at the ADR rates by all of these various, uh, metrics and see, are there any differences? Uh, I, I think everybody who does colonoscopy wants to feel that they're doing good quality exams. And if somebody came up to me and said, you know, your ADR rate is such and such, but, uh, if you were to consider X, Y, and Z, maybe your ADR rate could go even higher or whatever. I think if we could understand more about from the provider's, uh, side of things, it might even improve the quality of colonoscopies, I should preface all of this by saying that we've looked at the general ADR rates of all of the AmSurg providers, and it's really excellent. Uh, I, I give AmSurg providers an enormous amount of credit because overall the ADR rates are really, really excellent. So it's not like there's any slackers here. Uh, we want it, but as we all know, there's a there's a spread of ADRs even amongst good ADR. Uh, providers, so understanding a little bit more about the quality. The other thing that we could look at is: Are there uh, w- what findings the Am Surge providers have encountered when they've scoped patients because of a positive FIT test or a positive colon guard. We all know that during the COVID pandemic, uh, colonoscopies were only being done for emergent reasons, so the screening colonoscopies went down dramatically around the country. But still, home-based stool testing was still being done. In fact, maybe done even more so in certain settings. Uh, And that was a year ago uh, or almost a year ago in some cases. So what was the outcome of positive stool tests and what was found at colonoscopy when the exams were being done for positive stool tests? So there's a lot of richness in the AMSURG data. Uh, which, frankly, to this day, I'm so grateful to be part of because uh, it's really a unique data set, and uh, I feel blessed to have this relationship with Jay and and the AmSearch team.
1: Well, uh, you know, that's that's a great sentiment, Steve, and the, the feeling is, of course, very mutual. And you mentioned the the positive stool test. We, as I know you know, we presented our data at DDW a couple of years ago, looking at uh, positive MTS DNA testing. And we now have collected about 17,000 patients that we have data on. And that manuscript is sitting on my desk. Um, it just needs to be dusted off a little bit. But I think that's the kind of information that people would would love to hear to get out into the public domain. Um, you know, when we think about other things, a lot, and this discussion came up very often on our calls, and that's about disparities. And that's something you've had great interest in th- throughout your career. Can you speak a little bit about that, the disparities with regard to stage at diagnosis, uh, outcomes, screening? Um, talk to us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, thanks, Jay. So uh, the statistics that come from, for example, SEER data and other national sources have suggested for the last couple of decades that uh, the individuals in the United States at the highest risk of getting colorectal cancer and dying of colorectal cancer are African Americans, uh, Alaskan Natives, and American Indians. Those are the, probably the two highest risk groups. <clears throat> uh, Latinos and Asians tend to have somewhat lower rates of colorectal cancer and therefore slightly lower mortality rates uh, than the white population. So we see these disparities uh, across the country by race. Uh, it's difficult to know what all the factors are uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, when it comes to screening, so the rates I just told you were for incidence and mortality. But if you look at screening rates, they're also lower in uh, many underserved populations. But the lesson we learned in New York City with the C5 Coalition uh, was that if you provide access to everyone, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, you'll find that the screening rates are identical. So people will come in for colonoscopy. This is for colonoscopy specifically. People will come in for their colonoscopies if they have access, if they're um, motivated to do that, if they're navigated, uh, etc. So in order to make an impact and chip away at the disparate incidence rates, we've got to get people's screens, take out those polyps before they get cancer, uh, and In New York City, we even, uh, along the way, this is a 15, 18-year effort, along the way, we realized there were certain populations that were lagging behind. For example, the Asian population was lagging behind, and the Russian population was lagging behind. And we put dedicated efforts into those communities and increased their rates to that of everybody else. So it's a matter of paying attention to data and working to try to level the playing field.
1: Hmm. Um. You know, the other thing, and I know it's been an interest of yours, and we talk about screening and being gastroenterologists, we think of colonoscopy. There are obviously other options. Could you talk a little bit about what screening tests should be done? Are there specific populations we should be looking at stool based? What do you think the future is with blood based testing? Talk a little bit about that.
0: Right. So we've all heard this saying the best colon cancer screening test is the one that gets done and Sid Winner would say, and gets done well. <laughs> um, we, so, we really, uh, at Mount Sinai in the last few years, like many other centers and, and uh, organizations, have come around to the realization that patients really have to be offered a choice of tests. As gastroenterologists, we want everybody to have colonoscopy, of course, but it's just not realistic. We have plateaued in New York City at around 70% For years, we've been stuck at 70%. And many places in the country are maybe in the low 70s trying very hard to get to the national uh, 80% uh, milestone if we can help it. And I do believe that to get higher than about 70%, it's going to have to be with other alternative screening tests besides colonoscopy. And we developed a program at Mount Sinai called Choice, where patients who are referred for screening are educated in colonoscopy, fit test, uh, multi-target stool DNA tests, and let them choose, what would they do? What would they, you know? We give them the pros and cons of all the tests, and what would you do? But just do something. So I think this notion of choice is really, really important. And uh, many of the guidelines, uh, the national guidelines, we have city-specific guidelines in New York, are including stool-based testing on a par. Uh, equal. So patients really should feel comfortable choosing the stool-based tests. Uh, of course, we all know that if a stool test is positive, that should importantly be done, uh, be followed by a colonoscopy within the next six to nine months, no longer than that, because otherwise bad pathology uh, creeps up on you. But stool-based testing and colonoscopy. Now, there of course, there's CT colonography, which is a very good test. It's not as ubiquitously used But in certain environments, it can also be helpful. So it primarily comes down to colonoscopy, uh, fit testing, and multi-target stool DNA. The blood test, of course, that's the holy grail. Can we do a just simple blood test in the office? Um, There's a lot of development around that. Uh, It's too early to tell how useful that will be. Uh, I think it's unrealistic for an individual marker to have the performance characteristics that we would like. Uh, but a lot of the blood-based tests are uh, multi-omics; they are panel tests with uh, multiple genes uh, or multiple RNA, uh, and that's very promising. But we still have to wait and see what the results are going to turn out to show us in the next few years.
1: Yeah, I know there are a number of trials ongoing, and um, uh, it's exciting. You know, I think there are not just colon cancer, but but other cancers that are being looked at in the so-called blood-based biopsies. So. I think the future is bright, but you know, I like to say, Steve, that all roads lead to colonoscopy so that um, when you do have a positive test, and, and I think that's a big challenge, you know, you reference something that I think is so important. Uh, you talk about New York having 70% being stuck at 70%. That aspirational 80% by 18, of course, um, came and went. Uh, some pockets got there, but others didn't. Um, we as a country have been stuck kind of in the mid to high 60s for the last several years. I think the work that, that you are doing uh, in a big way at the National Colorectal Cancer Roundtable, and I, I have to tell you that the, the first meeting I attended was 2019 and I, I found it to be absolutely inspirational. And just kudos to you for, for all the work you've done there. So I think that you know, you've emphasized to us um, the role of education. We got to get the word out. I think we're trying hard. Uh, but we've we've got a long way to go. Do you, do you think there's any any key? What can we do to to better educate the public, our physician colleagues, primary care? Um, you know the whole the whole ball of wax. How do we do it better?
0: Right. I I think we just have to keep talking about it. Uh, some a lot of patients are a little squeamish and reluctant to talk about stool or to talk about their colons. Um, one important thing that we haven't mentioned so far on this call is family history. And we know full well that people who have a positive family history of colon cancer, especially if that relative is younger than about 60, that's in a very important risk factor that confers about a one and a half or even twofold risk to individuals. So, And we actually saw that data in uh, the AMSURG collaboration where people who had a positive family history uh, had the same rates of pathology, but five years younger. And uh, as we all know, the guidelines usually say that if somebody has a positive family history, they should be coming for screening even 10 years younger than the stated age for everybody else. So find out your family history. Physicians really have to do a better job of uh, acquiring and asking about family history. By the way, a family history of advanced adenomas is about as important as a family history of colorectal cancer. Nobody knows whether Uncle Joe had an advanced adenoma, but if you scoped Uncle Joe and you found an advanced adenoma, you should inform Uncle Joe to tell his family that the doctor found an advanced adenoma, and now our family really needs to be looked at. So we have to do a lot of education of our patients. We have to, I think, still even educate physicians about the importance of screening, about the importance of offering choice, because that way at least patients will do something. Uh, And just staying in everybody's awareness. Now that COVID rates, fortunately, have gone down, Uh, I believe a lot of these choices are on the table again. Uh, so whatever the patients want to do, we should be ready to assist them with. If you can, uh, set up a navigation program, that's really key. And I would also put it in a pitch for navigating fit tests. It's not enough to just hand a patient a fit test and say, well, you know, return it. You need to be able to track that. You need to be able to, if it's a negative test, like most of them will be, They have to be brought back in a year. You need a system to track that. So there's navigation that really has to be part of not just colonoscopy, but the whole program of colon cancer screening. And I do feel that we can reach as a country, the aspirational, as you said, 80% 80% in every community. That's now the new mantra of the National Colon Cancer Roundtable. It's 80% in every community. And a community is defined however you want it. It's your local community, uh, whether you're rural or urban, uh, inner city, not inner city. Um, whatever community you work in, you should try to reach that 80% screening rate. Mm,
1: for sure. And you know the other points you make, uh, like follow-up fit testing, it's, it's not enough for a metric to say I did colon cancer screening because I ordered a fit test. Uh, if you don't follow through, follow up and make sure the positives get appropriately evaluated and make sure it's repeated in a year and so forth, then you really haven't done your job. One final thing I'd like you to comment on, Steve, when we're in, in the point about family history is so important. What about paying attention to symptoms in the young population? You want to speak to that a little bit?
0: Thanks, Jay. Yeah, actually, in the data that we worked on with, with AMSERGE that I mentioned, uh, we included young individuals who not only had screening colonoscopies, quote-unquote, but also diagnostic colonoscopies. And what we did find was that if somebody had a colonoscopy because of overt bleeding or occult bleeding, uh, the rates of pathology were higher, as you might expect. So, if a young person, a young again, is younger than age 50, has rectal bleeding, uh, change in bowel habits. You know, I've been in the business 40 years. When I first started, we blew that off and we said it was hemorrhoids or don't worry about it. But certainly in the last 10 years or 15 years, as we're seeing young onset colon cancer rates go up, we have to really be very, very vigilant. And uh, I think most practitioners now have a low threshold for bringing in young people with rectal bleeding or change in bowel habits much earlier and doing a colonoscopy. Uh, That's really one of the main ways by which we'll decrease the increasing rates of young onset colorectal cancer.
1: Steve, a lot of our partners have asked about the paper that we presented at DDW, and they were very excited about it. They were even more excited to hear that we have other plans to use this database to advance the science of colorectal cancer. How do you suppose they could help us? Because several of them have asked Could they get involved? Thanks,
0: Jay. Yes, I'm glad you asked that question because they could absolutely get involved. Uh, And our next project with Ampsurge is looking at provider characteristics and how that contributes to their ADRs. Uh, And we sent out a survey uh, about a half a year ago to the various practice managers and physicians themselves with a very simple, literally three to four minute questionnaire about their gender, their uh, sex, uh, their sex, their race, their ethnicity, their years in practice, whether they're a gastroenterologist. We got a reasonable response rate, but we would love to get even more providers from AMSurge to fill out that anonymous questionnaire. Uh, it's IRB approved. It's all above board. There's no way that any of us can identify or link an individual to their ADR or their various characteristics or demographics. So we really would hope that more providers in AmSurge would respond to that survey. Frankly, there is nothing in the literature that connects the race or ethnicity of the provider with their performance characteristics. And the only way to get at that is to ask providers if they would be willing to volunteer that information. So we're really in a unique position to be the first publication, frankly, that could start to look at this question. Uh, We don't know if it'll show any differences, but until you do research, you'll never know.
1: Steve, this has been great. And I wish we had more time, but I, I so appreciate your sharing such great insights with us. And for discussing the important work that you and your team at Sinai and and our collaboration at AmSurge are doing to to better understand colon cancer. And I'd also like to thank our listeners. I'm sure you found this as enjoyable and informative as I did, and I'm glad you could join us again for another episode of The Surge. Until next time, I'm Jay Pop. take care.
0: Thank you for listening to The Surge. If you have any questions about this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please contact us at communications at msurge.com.